popping pillies, man, I feel just like a rock star Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we are going to be doing the second half of Matthew, looking at Jesus, seeing that Jesus was, in fact, an open theist. Now, thinking back to my debate on Isaiah with uh, Mr. Maddox, it, it's pretty funny that his take on the scriptures was, uh, you know, I did a pretty good job of shutting down all his proof texts to try to prove that Isaiah held his theology. What I should have hit him harder on was the fact that in his system, it doesn't matter what the text says. The text could say Isaiah thinks that God thinks discursively, that God is in time, declaring two people in time. And his, his method of thinking, his approach to the scriptures, is that the Bible can say anything and nothing, absolutely nothing, could contradict his theology. His, his response to me when I, I would show that Isaiah systematically thought that God thinks discursively, Oh yeah, that fits my model. Okay, your model fits anything. Your your model's not a useful model. What in fact your model states that all the characters in the text could say everything against your model and your model is still correct. You have to look at what Isaiah is actually saying. If if Isaiah is saying that God thinks discursively, God acts discursively, he he responds to people, he takes input from outside himself, we need to be taking Isaiah on face value. We can't assume he's got some sort of secret system uh, beyond all of this that, uh, oh, in reality, God doesn't change and he has everything decided from all eternity. That is not explicitly what Isaiah is saying. A model that it has to explain away explicit statements is a bad model. And so the same principle can be taken with Matthew. What Jesus says is what we care about. And so far what we've looked at, we have no indication that uh, Jesus thinks of God as this abstract entity that's uh, timeless, spaceless, outside space and time with non-discursive knowledge of uh, or inherently uh, generated knowledge, self-generated knowledge, not from outside himself, perfectly simple and unchanging. That is the model that we are going against. So anytime God is responding Active, acting discursively, uh, if he's if he's learning new things, if he has values from outside himself, this is open theism. This means the classical model of God is not in Jesus's theology. So we're going to start off in Matthew 15. We look here, and this is Jesus, and he's answering the scribes and Pharisees, and they're criticizing him. Oh, you're violating tradition, and he turns it around on them, and he says, "No, you." You are violating tradition. He says, For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses his father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you may have received from me is a gift to God. Then he need not honor his father and mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God no effect by your tradition. So, they are reversing God's commandments. They're thwarting God, right? And God... He doesn't value himself over everything that, uh, you know, there's no value from outside of God. God values people. God values fathers and mothers. And he values that children take care of those fathers and mothers in the old age. And so when churches, when uh, these scribes and Pharisees say to people, take your money and give to God, and that's just as good as honoring your father and mother, that is offensive to God. Offensive because God values people. God has values from outside himself. 
This is an open theist. This is an Arminian concept. This is not a Calvinist concept. In the Calvinist worldview, God looks down. There's none righteous. Uh, he hates everyone. Everyone's deserving of hell. And only people who God cares about really are the elect, people who have the special enlightening. But they didn't deserve any of that. They didn't deserve uh, any of their election. They should have died. Everyone's worthy of death. But in Jesus' mind, God has value for people. God values people. It's a loving, it's a loving picture of God being presented here. Moving on to chapter 16, this is Jesus, and he's discussing things with his disciples. And, you know, this is the pretty standard fare for Jesus' ministry. If anyone desires to come to me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Commands to action. The, just Jesus, throughout his ministry, commands people to action. He's not a fatalist. He believes in free will. He believes he can convince people, and people often resist what Jesus says. So skipping forward, it says, For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Oh, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will reward each one according to his works. God acts responsively. He responds to people. God looks at a situation, evaluates it, and responds in turn. This is discursive. This is reasoning. This is a sequence of events, one leading to the other. This is God responding to creation. Fundamentally, Jesus does not think that God is outside space and time, ungenerated knowledge, and not responding to his creation. Jesus believes that God takes outside input and uses it to evaluate situations. And just note, a side note, this is Jesus' apocalyptic ministry that uh, the angels are going to come back and kill the wicked and bless the righteous and establish the coming kingdom on earth. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here that shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. There's going to be a kingdom being established on earth. In Matthew 17, we have the transfiguration where Jesus takes a couple disciples, goes up on a hill, and then he meets with these angelic beings and they all start glowing. But listen to this, just, just like the Jesus baptism, we get a voice from heaven. In Matthew 17, 5, while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out from the cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, hear him. So who's speaking? Apparently someone who Jesus is the son of, right? And so you, you would think you would think maybe God is speaking. Yes, granted, uh, someone commented the last time on the last one that it could be uh, someone giving a message on behalf of God. It's still discursive, still in time. It's still one word leads to another. Maybe, but more probably this is meant to be the voice of God. God. This is this is God saying, this is my beloved son. You know, sometimes angels are used as messengers, but it's it's hard to know whether the angel is referring to Yahweh himself. Jacob wrestles with God, but also wrestles with an angel. Angel is God, a class of angel in the Bible. Michael Heiser would say, yes, that the, there's a category of being called angel of which God is one, right? So it, it's it might be a classification issue rather than uh, this is a messenger arguing or stating something on behalf of God. I would I would read this as whoever the Father is, that's the one talking. 
But uh, you, to each their own, I guess. Matthew 18, of course, at the end of Matthew, we get into these long speeches, long teaching, chains of teachings by Jesus. Not necessarily all the same speech at the same time, probably a loose collection of various miscellaneous sayings. And we got temptations to sin in Matthew 18, 8. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Remember, Jesus' ministry was a moral reformation. You, you got to start acting well because the kingdom of God is coming. It's going to be established. And if you don't make yourself right with God, you are not going to be a part of it. Notice, uh, notice that people can take precautions to change what would be. The future's open in Jesus's mind. People can be warned. People can do things such that, you know, they can preclude certain conclusions that are unfavorable. This is Jesus's view of the world. It's not fatalistic. It's it's a command for people to act, for people to respond. Matthew 18:10, take heed that you do not despise the little ones, for I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So a lot of people um, have discussions about guardian angels. I think about that movie, Angels in the Outfield, for anyone under 30, probably has never seen that movie. But there, he seems to be teaching here that little ones, children, have assigned guardian angels who advocate on behalf of those children to God. Remember, in Jesus' view of cosmology, God is on the throne in heaven and angels will present themselves before him and argue just like we see in Job, just like we see in 1 Kings 22. We saw, we saw already in Matthew that Jesus says that he's the advocate on our behalf in front of the Father. So this is a thing that happens in Jesus's cosmology, that uh, people converse with God and advocate for God's action on behalf of others. There's third-party intercessors in this situation. God has conversations. God's not timeless and, uh, you know, he, uh, immutable and impassable, nothing like that. God is actively petitioned to do things on behalf of others. Things, presumably, that wouldn't otherwise be done or else what's the point of this? It's, it's not this nihilistic sense that, oh, everything's happening by fate and God can't be prevailed upon by prayer. And remember, Jesus believes in the power of prayer. Jesus believes in the power of intercession. Jesus believes that God can be moved to action. These angels, these angels believe that God can be moved to action. Another thing to note here, this completely contradicts the Calvinist notion Oh, these children are so evil or anything like that. The little ones are always presented by Jesus as innocence, innocence incarnate, that anyone who does anything to these children, uh, that better that a millstone be dragged around their neck and then thrown into the ocean, you know, because children personify innocence. These are the type of people that God wants, not old, crusty, evil people who are filled with hate and sin. God loves the children. The opposite of what Calvinists say, that God hates children. God hates children in the womb, right? They'll, they'll point to Paul and they'll say, see, God hates these babies. 
That's not the message that we're, we're getting from Jesus, is it? Reinforcing this idea, Matthew 18, 14, even so, it's not the will of your Father who is in heaven, Father who is in heaven, this is a reoccurring theme, that one of these little ones should perish. So do any little ones perish? Probably that means just like death, like uh, one of these kids die, not necessarily die and go to hell. That's probably what he's meaning. But little ones do perish, right? God's will is thwarted. Just as earlier, I think it's in Matthew, that the, the lawyers, the scribes, the Pharisees, do not get baptized. They resist the will of God. God doesn't always get what he wants, which is, which is a biblical thing. God does not always get what he wants. That, we see it throughout the Bible. It's, you, you see it right here, Matthew 18, 14. In fact, I brought this up to one guy who... You know, these Calvinists, they, they think that a laugh react is better than an actual argument. God doesn't always get what he wants, and they think that's hilarious. I don't know what Bible you're reading, but it's not the Christian Bible. You're not Christian. <laughs> you're not Christian, my friend. Um, so if, if you care about what God says and God's views about things, you should probably read the Bible and believe it and not have a secret system Oh, Isaiah secretly believed God's outside space and time and immutable and impassable. You're not a Christian. You, you don't believe in the God of the Bible. You're just making up your own thing. And then you're just saying you follow the Bible. And then you just take the Bible however you want. This is not the way to do theology. The Calvinist, he, he looked at this passage. He says, who's this about? And it says, it tells us, we, we don't have to go around guessing who this is about. It's about the lost ones, right? It says in uh, 12, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the 99 and go to the mountains to seek the one that is strained? And if he should find it, assuredly, I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the 99 that did not go astray. God cares about the lost. God cares about those who are strained. God wants them back into the fold. He doesn't want them to perish, but sheep do perish. God doesn't get what he wants. Scrolling down just a little bit, Matthew 18, 19, we talked a little bit about Jesus's belief in the power of prayer. Matthew 18, 19, again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. My Father in heaven, there's that phrase again. But we can affect God. Our input can get God to act. And it's not necessarily whatever God wants most. You know, it, it, there's, there's no qualifiers like that. Well, you know, God's going to evaluate your prayer and figure out if it's the best thing to do. Often within the Bible, God responds to prayer without consideration of if that's actually the best strategy because he cares about our input. God cares about our input. He values our input and he acts accordingly, even if that's not necessarily the thing he wants to do. God doesn't always get what he wants. It's a theme of scripture. Scrolling down, we have the parable of the unforgiving servant. Within these parables, typically God is cast as the landowner, the rich individual, the person with the power, and the actors within these parables are a people on earth, perhaps. The son is typically cast as Jesus, in the parable of the unforgiving servant, you have a king who forgives all sorts of debts owed to others, and then they in turn do not forgive the debts of others. And so the king revokes his forgiveness based on their actions. We, we get a good summary down here. So my heavenly father, who is cast as the rich landowner, the king, will also do to you 
if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brothers his trespasses. God responds to our actions. God's, God's taking inputs from outside himself. This is not classical theism. God is acting on information which comes to him and reacting accordingly. Uh, these people have already been forgiven in the parable and their forgiveness is canceled. Uh, he said, I know I forgave you this, but uh, since you in turn are not doing that for others, I'm going to revoke my forgiveness, which is a very interesting concept to think about. In Matthew 19, we reach the story of the rich young man who approaches Jesus and he says, basically, how do I be perfect? And Jesus goes on and tells him. He's not like modern evangelicals who say, no man can be perfect. Uh, well, that's pretty funny. If you talk to people about these passages, evangelicals, they'll, they'll try to qualify what Jesus says. And they'll say, well, what Jesus is saying is no one can be perfect because, you know, uh, the standards are just too high. And in that way, he's illustrating for us today, he's illustrating for us, you know, that no one really can be perfect. So everyone needs the blood of Jesus. This is not what's being said here. Jesus tells the man practically what the man has to do to be perfect. And the man decides not to. Here's the interesting thing. This disciples, they... They hear Jesus say, Assuredly, I say to you, that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And so the eye of the needle, either that's like a hole in a door or it's the hole in a little needle for sewing. But uh, in any ways, these camels are pretty big and so they're not going to fit. And the disciples, get they get very worried because, you know, who can be saved is what they say. And Jesus looked at them and said, with men that's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So what does that mean? Is he making a metaphysical statement that God now can create square circles? I don't think that's what's going on here. I think that's basically saying that God could work on the hearts and reach even the most unreachable people to get them to act. I think that's what's going on here. I don't think it's a metaphysical statement about the extent of God's uh, omnipotence or omnipotence, his ability to create things necessarily. I don't think that's what's talking. It's about his ability to reach people. We get to Matthew 20. We have a parable of the laborers in the vineyard. Basically, what happens is all different type of laborers come to this vineyard and start work at all different hours. And then at the end of the day, they get all the same pay. So they're getting different rates. The people who only worked for an hour are getting the same amount as the people who worked for 10 hours. And basically, this is uh, God saying that he's allowed to distribute grace or pardons to people uh, independence of what we think is fair and just. And so people who repent right before the kingdom of God is established on earth are going to enter the kingdom just as much as people who have been working their entire lives, the people who are, are dying, the martyrs for the faith. They're going to get the same entry into the kingdom as, uh, as the people who repent at the last minute. And so God's saying that it's just and fair for me to do this because that's my prerogative. The kingdom of God is mine, and I should be able to decide how I distribute who can enter that kingdom. It's really a commentary on justice that retributive justice is not necessarily a thing. Not everyone gets exactly what they deserve. Some people are shown more leniency than others, depending on how God wants to show mercy. It's his prerogative, and so he's allowed to do that. 
In Matthew 21, Jesus enters Jerusalem. Scrolling down, he meets a fig tree. Let's look at this fig tree. Now in the morning, this is Matthew 21, 18. Now in the morning, as he returned to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves. And said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately the fig tree withered away. So Jesus is searching for food. Jesus doesn't have this omniscience that some people like to ascribe to Jesus. Oh, Jesus knew everything about everything. No, he's, he's looking for food and doesn't find any. And then as a result of not finding any, he curses the tree on which he found nothing. He looked, but did not find. Jesus does not have omniscience in the book of Matthew. Matthew 22 is the parable of the wedding feast. This is a very important parable for understanding God's election. And, and this totally undermines any Calvinist notion of what it means to be elect. Remember, as Jackie Moore says in his book and in his, uh, he's got uh, YouTube videos, the elect in the Bible is not being used as, oh, God's just picking people like this. But elect means like choice. Like uh, I think about uh, Sam's Club and they have Maker's Mark. They have uh, choice choice uh, wine or choice toilet paper or whatever they put their maker's mark on everything and so what they're saying is that this is the choice this is the good stuff and so in that same way you know you pick the elect grapes you pick the best grapes to make your wine that's what elect how that's used in the bible and that's what we learn from this parable where there's this king and he sends out this general invitation that is thwarted the people who are invited don't come god's election is thwarted god doesn't always get what he wants he calls them over uh they refuse and so he sends out to a different group of people and then they respond but not all of them respond as they should there's someone who shows up to the feast dressed in the incorrect out outfit and so that person is cast cast in the outer darkness so a lot of people are elect but few are chosen that's that's the meaning of this parable that god calls people resist. So God then uses a contingency plan, calls different people, and the ones who respond appropriately are the ones who are elect or chosen. Many are called, but few are chosen, right? That, that is our, that's our takeaway here, that God doesn't always get what he wants, and God will be innovative in order to get what he wants. It might not be God's original plan, but God sometimes has to use contingency plans and it, you know, it might, might not always look the way we want it to look. You know, a lot of people would say, oh, the Pharisees and the scribes, those are the most godly in the kingdom. But this parable is telling us, no, he's reaching out to a new group because the scribes and Pharisees have failed God. God doesn't always get what he wants. That, that's the meaning. That's what elect and chosen means. Every time we see that in the Bible, we should probably think in our mind, God doesn't always get what he wants. Who's the elect? Who's the chosen? For many are called, but few are chosen. People resist God. Matthew 23, 14, this, this reinforces what we covered earlier, where God cares about people. And he says, what do you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. What that also tells us is, comparative justice you know they they get greater condemnation than they would otherwise because um acting hypocritically right god considers the conditions of our sins for how grievous that sin is and teachers will get greater judgment than non-teachers people who are hypocrites people who are destroying the innocent 
destroying the innocent. And who does God value throughout the Bible? It's widows, it's orphans, it's children. And when you attack those groups, when you, you uh, kill them, when you uh, wrong them, you are at greater condemnation. God is the advocate of these underclasses. Scrolling down to Matthew 23, 22, And he who swears by heaven, this is Jesus speaking, swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. To Jesus, God is on a throne in heaven, just as we see in Job 1 Kings 22. We've seen throughout the book of Matthew, God is in heaven. You could interact with God. The angels advocate for children to God directly. There, there's, there's a mutual correspondence going on there. It's not this uh, singularity outside of space and time, existence, uh, unchangeable, nothing like that. God is in heaven. You could talk to God. You could appear to God as we see in Isaiah and in Daniel. These things can happen in Jesus's theology. Scrolling down, we get to a pretty famous verse. O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones, those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. God doesn't always get what he wants. That's a pretty consistent theme throughout this book that God doesn't get what he wants. These people thwart God. These people thwart what God wants. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. So what do Calvinists do with this? Let's look at what James White says about this. This is a, a list of Calvinist quotes about this verse. It is assumed by Arminian writers that Jerusalem represents individual Jews who are therefore capable of resisting the work and will of Christ. Yep, I, I think so. That that seems to be the face value reading. But upon what warrant do we leap from Jerusalem to individual Jews? Well, the book of Romans is kind of written to all Gentiles and Jewish believers, right? So it, you, you can do that. It's It seems to be fitting the circumstances. And in Jesus's ministry, I don't think he's preaching exclusively to, to Jerusalem. And I don't think that's actually going to be very useful for us, the modern day reader, if this is just, just only talking to Jerusalem and doesn't communicate anything of value to us. So what thing of value is it communicating to its reader, who is us? Why did the author include this statement in in his uh, sayings of Jesus. It seems like Calvinists want to take the least intuitive readings of different passages. So, but does it matter? What is James White's point? The context would lead us not to conclude that this is to be taken in a universal sense. So what? People are still resisting God's will. How often I wanted, but you were not willing. So we pull out some clauses. How often I wanted, God wanted something, but you were not willing. God's will is being thwarted. Something God wants. Calvinists deny wants to God. They deny him desires. They deny him anything that can give him value outside himself. But in, in this, this is Jesus talking, but Jesus seems to be projecting himself in the voice of God. How often I wanted to gather your children together as hens gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. God is being thwarted. God doesn't always get what he wants. Back to James White. The context would not lead us to conclude that this is to be taken in a universal sense. Jesus is condemning the Jewish leaders, and it is to them that he refers here. All right, they're resisting his will. This is clearly seen in that it is to the leaders that God sends his prophets. It was the Jewish leaders who killed the prophets and those who sent him. Jesus speaks of your children gathering together those who's uh, blah, blah, blah. 
A vitally important point to make here is that the ones the Lord desired to gather are not the ones who were not willing. Okay, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. God's will is being thwarted. I wanted, but you were not willing. God's will is being thwarted, resisted. Something James White doesn't think is possible. But anyways, he's a Calvinist, and so it doesn't matter what the text says. The text could literally say anything, and he wouldn't believe it over his own theology. He would say, well, that, that, that reading, it still fits my theology because you have to understand it in a way that God's talking to man based on our experiences. And so literally, it doesn't matter what the text says. James White's theology is true regardless. Just like in the Isaiah debate, it doesn't actually matter what Isaiah says. Calvinism is true regardless. It's an unfalsifiable cultish uh, theology. It's a cult. These people are, are not rational. There's nothing the Bible could say to make them convinced that their theology is not true. There is literally nothing that will falsify Calvinism. Matthew 24, Jesus keeps talking, preaching about his apocalyptic ministry, the signs of the end of the ages. Jesus's ministry was apocalyptic in nature. Matthew 24, 20, and pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. I don't think Jesus here is talking about just like a general, you know, just pray that you roll a dice and it's going to be six, you know, just, I, I don't think he's being facetious or using a figure of speech. I think he's actually saying, pray to God, uh, talk to God, and God might respond and make sure your flight's not in winter. That seems to be what he's communicating here, that there's an actual prayer, not just like some sort of vague hope. <laughs> not like, just hope your flight might not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Pray that when you're fleeing, that uh, it's not really cold out and then you're going to freeze to death, right? He's saying, pray to God. This is what it seems like he's saying. Pray to God so that God can ensure a safe journey for you. God responds to prayer. It's a consistent theme throughout Jesus's ministry here. God responds to people. Jesus is not a Calvinist. For then there will be great tribulation, such as have not been seen since the beginning of the world until this time, nor shall there ever be. You know, a preterist or anyone who says this has happened already, probably not. Probably not has happened as of yet. And unless those days are were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. This is about the variability of time. Like people in the Bible, sometimes they have years added to their lives. Hezekiah has years added to their life. People, their lives are shortened. Their lives are lengthened. Things can change. Things, uh, the future is not set. And God has shortened that time, as it says here. The future is not set. It's not faded. Things can change. Future things that would happen otherwise do not happen. Then if anyone says to you, look here, here's the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. And so the elect can be deceived. Uh, Jesus is saying, if it's possible for the elect to be, see, be deceived, uh, it's, if it's the possibility, that they'll probably get deceived as well. It's not this Calvinist notion of, uh, once you're enlightened, there's no falling away. And if anyone does fall away, they were never enlightened in the first place. It's a possibility in Jesus's mind that the elect become deceived and fall away. 
Scrolling down, we're still in the context of Jesus' apocalyptic teachings. He will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds. And from one heaven to the other, you know, the, the angels are going to gather together all the elect. They're going to kill all the wicked. This is an apocalyptic event. This is uh, Jesus' teachings. Matthew 24, 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. If we go look at parallel texts, he actually includes himself in this. If we deviate outside the book of Matthew, we got the harmony pulled up. If we look at Mark, see what Mark says about this. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So in Mark, Jesus doesn't have omniscience this matthew passage possibly is including jesus probably probably because he says my father only which excludes him just mark is a little bit more explicit which kind of goes to show you that these teachings are not it's not someone sitting there that's just writing down the things that jesus are saying they're they're probably paraphrases they're probably conceptual and it's okay to truncate it's okay to consolidate those sayings into something uh more more readily available something they, they don't have to be exact if you're talking about someone who gave a speech sometime you could probably just give overviews or general points rather than if you're presenting their words you don't have to say oh these are exact quotes especially not in the ancient context of how these writers and historians operated Matthew 25, the parable of the talents. This is about God responding to people according to their actions. Again, God responds to people. Uh, Matthew 25, 19, after a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. God responds to people. God judges according to people's actions. And from whom, uh, to, to whom much is given, much is required. To him who little is given, little is required. You know, you need to be working though on behalf of God, or else you will be judged accordingly. Scrolling down, we get another sampling of Jesus' apocalyptic ministry. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the holy angels with him, he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him. He will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats, and he will set his sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared from you from the foundation of the world. This phrase, from the foundation of the world, this is apo, it's sense. God's kingdom is being pre, being prepared in heaven by God since the foundation of the world. This is not like a pre-existing kingdom. God is working in time to set up this kingdom for us in real time. That's what's being communicated here in this phrase, since the foundation of the world. God has been preparing this as he goes. It's not a pre-existing kingdom from the foundation of the world. That's not what's going on here. God prepares places for us in heaven. In Matthew 26, we are reaching towards the end of Matthew. There's a plot to kill Jesus. Jesus is anointed. Judas betrays Jesus. There's a Passover. So we get down here to Matthew 26, 30. Jesus foretells Peter's denial. As we've seen throughout the book of Matthew, Jesus is not, not omniscient. So the question is, how? What's the mechanism of Jesus knowing this? And counterfactually, what would happen if Peter didn't deny? We would just take it as, Oh, it looks like he responded to the warning, right? But uh, since it did occur, everyone grabs these events that did occur that were prophesied, quote-unquote, to happen. And they say, look, this is absolute proof of uh, God's foreknowledge of all events. Uh, there, there's no consistent standards going on here. But more probable 
Jesus knew Peter is going to be tested. And since he knows Peter's character, he's very impulsive. Peter's very impulsive within uh, Matthew. Uh, he, he knows how he's going to deny him. And if Peter didn't deny him, even better. Peter would have heeded a warning. Further down, we get a little bit more of Jesus being an open theist. Remember, he's praying to God. He's praying to the Father in the garden. And uh, Calvinists will say, well, there's only one event that you can't deny isn't fated, and that's the crucifixion. But does Jesus believe what the Calvinists believe? Uh, Calvinists tend to believe all sorts of crazy things. It doesn't matter what the Bible says. The Bible could say literally anything. They will not believe it, and they'll believe their own theology instead. This is what Jesus says. Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So what we learn here is not only does Jesus, he doesn't know if this thing has to go come through. Uh, it is possible in his mind that it can be averted. And it's possible that Jesus, that God, he takes Jesus's recommendation of the cup passing rather than fulfilling his purpose because God responds to prayer. And so Jesus has to preface this. He has to put a disclaimer, not as I will, but as you will. He says, so really search your heart, God, and see if this is really necessary. And uh, if it's not really necessary, then please don't do it. But don't let my will guide what you're going to do. There has to be a disclaimer because God responds to prayer. And so if there's this disclaimer is not there, very possibly that God will do what he doesn't want to do because often God defers to people who are praying in the Bible. God responds to prayer. God does not always get what he wants. Uh, anytime you, you come to prayer, God does not always get what he wants. God actually defers a lot of times to his creation from input, from outside himself. Jesus is an open theist. Jesus doesn't think the crucifixion is a set event. Jesus is not a Calvinist. Verse 42, again, a second time he went away and prayed, My father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. So Jesus is saying, just do what you need to do, God. Scrolling down even further, this is the betrayal. Judas comes with a bunch of people with clubs and swords to arrest Jesus. And uh, Jesus says to his disciples, Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus, based on prayer, can subvert the crucifixion because God responds to prayer. The crucifixion is not a set event in Jesus' mind. It's only a set event in Calvinists' minds. And a lot of Arminians as well will think that the crucifixion is set. That's the one event throughout history absolutely needed to happen. Jesus does not agree. Jesus does not agree with their man-made theology that they impose on the Bible. They are not getting that from the Bible. They're getting it from their philosophical, their philosophical assumptions that are not found in the Bible. Scrolling down to Jesus' trial, this is what he's asked. But Jesus kept silent, and the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, it is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus will sit at the right hand of God. In Jesus' theology, that you, you can talk to God in Jesus' theology. Finishing up Matthew, we got Judas hanging himself. We have Jesus uh, being crucified. 
We have the interesting statement in 2746, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There seems to be a ripping apart between uh, Jesus's relationship with the Father. Maybe something unexpected happened. Maybe Jesus was looking for last minute salvation. It, it's hard to know what exactly this means. You know, there's lots of theories and you could have your own theory. That's fine. But uh, Jesus is buried and he rises again. And then he gives the great commission. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth because the father doesn't hoard power. He divvies it up. Then Jesus himself distributes it to others. He says, go therefore make disciples of all nations. So are those nations, are the Gentiles included? Or is this nations all the tribes of Israel? Or is it all the different uh, places where Israel has set, settled? That's, a, that's an interesting discussion. It could be the whole world. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all the things I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. So this is Matthew. We went through the entire book of Matthew. Um, I saw nothing about God being pure simplicity. God having no parts, God being outside of change, God being uh, passionless, impassable, unable to be affected by creation, timeless, right? Sitting in an eternal now. We get nothing of that from Jesus's theology. Absolutely nothing about that. And, and in fact, Jesus takes a very strong stance against that. God gains value from outside himself. God responds to prayer. God listens to people and responds accordingly. God reverses his decisions based on our actions. God forgives us. We don't forgive others. God reverses his forgiveness based on our actions. God's always responding in real time. God cares about what we think. The crucifixion can be undone. The crucifixion can be subverted. Uh, God's will is continually subverted by his creation. Even the elect, uh, the, those people, the people who are called, reject God. And sometimes the elect can be turned away from God. The elect are the people who respond appropriately. And th that's not everyone God wants to respond. Sometimes God doesn't get what he wants. God does not get what he wants throughout Jesus's theology. Overarching theme. Ultimately, yes, ultimately God's going to establish his kingdom and he's going to establish a relationship with those who respond appropriately. But that's not everyone. And Satan is actively working to thwart God's plans. And, and sometimes Satan wins out on individual souls. He reaches the certain people, pulls them away. There's an active spiritual warfare against God. God doesn't always get what he wants. God is being thwarted, thwarted continually. But absolutely zero indication Jesus is a Calvinist. Jesus is not a Calvinist. Jesus believes in Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, God of the New Testament, a God who can change, react, has feelings, cares deeply for people, gains value from our praise, from our service. He gains value from watching children. He loves children. He loves the innocents. He, he's, he's an advocate on behalf of the powerless. This is who God is fundamentally. He's a good God. He's a loving God. He hates sin. He hates wickedness. He wants to destroy the wicked and establish a good, righteous kingdom with people to fellowship for eternity. This is Jesus's idea of God, not Calvinism. It's not uh, eternal omniscience of all things. It's, it's not the classical Greek attributes of God. It's a living, dynamic God. He is Yahweh, the living God of the Bible. This is Jesus' theology. Thank you for listening.